Welcome back to the Harvard Center for International Development's weekly speaker series podcast. This is Valeria Mendiola. I am an MPAID student at Harvard Kennedy School. This week, we are joined by Miguel Angel Santos and Tim O'Brien, who were part of the Growth Lab research team that conducted a project in Jordan in 2018 and 2019 to evaluate the country's macroeconomic disequilibria and identify the most binding constraints to economic growth. I'm sitting down with both of them after their appearance in the CID speaker series at Harvard Kennedy School on February 7th, 2020. Thank you so much for taking the time to come and speak with us today. So why don't you start by sharing with us some of Jordan's main macroeconomic indicators and their performance in the last few years, you know, economic growth, inflation, debt to GDP ratios, and how these indicators compare to other countries in the region. We started working in Jordan and around February 2018. At the moment, the country was undergoing the turmoil many countries went through, the Arab Spring, lots of people in the street, a fiscal consolidation process, foreign direct investment has slowed down. And that was what happening at the time. If you look at Jordan, like on a wider perspective, it was a country that has managed to grow at a very accelerated pace of approximately they duplicated income per capita in a decade in the 2000s. And the growth started to slow down after the global financial crisis. FDI also started to slow down after the financial crisis, but further after the oil prices came down, given that most of the foreign investment FDI comes from countries that are in the region that are oil exporters. So Jordan started to experience the slowdown in growth that many economies in the world experienced at the same pace after the global financial crisis. But on top of that, so FDI coming down from 13% of GDP in the 2000s to the vicinity of 5% of GDP. So remittances coming from Arab countries coming down. And on top of that, had had the Syrian refugee crisis, which had increased the population of Jordan by 50% between 2011 and 2018 when we arrived there. So it's a country that was doing well and starting in 2008-9 was subject to a large, massive number of shocks and had made a tremendous or was in the middle of a tremendous fiscal effort to adjust uh, those shocks. The inflation was pretty low. Growth actually had averaged 2.5, which is a pretty healthy rate, except for they have this massive increase in population. Therefore, when you switch to growth rates to per capita rates, the income per capita was negative. And over the five previous years, we went there, income per capita had fallen, depending on how you measured it, between 12 and 15%. Inflation was very low because Jordan has a peg to the US dollar. So they have a monetary policy and everything aligned to keep inflation. Therefore, foreign shocks hit the unemployment rate more than the inflation rate. And unemployment was also rampant on the mid-20s. And if you consider the youth, it was more on the 40%. So inflation wasn't very low because Jordan has an exchange rate that it's pegged to the US dollar. Therefore, all the external shocks of the country are not translated into higher inflation, but higher unemployment. Unemployment rates were extremely high on the mid-20s percent, but some particular groups like the youth and women had much higher unemployment rates that had created a sort of a pressure cooker in the streets at the time we arrived. One of the main questions that I have, I think, team, is which is one particular structural issue in the economy that has been constraining economic growth in Jordan? The biggest problem for Jordan was that when it took all these shocks, it lost all sorts of 
external income. The economy needed to import things. It took on lots of refugees and new people, so it had to import even more. But the many shocks affected its export sector in lots of different ways. Trade routes were shut down through different conflicts. Markets evaporated when conflicts started. And really important thing that happened after the Arab Spring was that Jordan lost its access to cheap natural gas from Egypt that it used to power its electricity system. So that's one of the, the biggest and most important shocks that it felt was that it had to switch over very rapidly to very expensive sources of fuel. Let, let me stop you here uh, for a bit. So how, did it, how exactly did it lose its access to cheap gas from, from Egypt? The pipeline was physically cut, destroyed okay. in okay. The, the chaos of the time. So it just physically couldn't get that gas into okay. the country anymore. So they had to find other ways. So they were uh, filling trucks with diesel and using that to power the uh, electricity grid, which is very expensive. And as a consequence, all economic activity that used a lot of electricity had to foot the bill for the more expensive electricity system. So they raised prices of electricity on businesses in order to keep them low on households. And this was a big shock to the economy and a lot of businesses were hit hard. So Jordan had to absorb these greater number of people with less economic activities and less exports. So it had this balance of payments gap it has to be filled somehow moving forward. So the government did a lot of things to try to deal with these multiple shocks through fiscal policy, through adjusting sources of energy. So they actually didn't end up with energy shortages. They just ended up with very expensive electricity. That included building a, a liquefied natural gas terminal so that they could import liquefied natural gas by ship, which helped a little bit, and included early investment in renewables and solar, competitive bidding for solar, but it, it, the economy had to kind of adjust to this electricity shock, which was a big deal. And also you were, Miguel, at the beginning of the talk, you were saying some things about the refugee crisis from Syria. So how is this refugee crisis affecting Jordan's economy and how is, is the country coping with this? Well, the, the first obvious way in which it affects is that three million people come in and they need a much higher social expenditure to accommodate them. This is people that have children that need schools to build, build, need hospital for their health to be taken care of, need transportation systems for the place where they need housing, need transportation system from the place where they are to the potential jobs. So the first immediate impact is on the social expenditure of the government required to accommodate them. And then uh, they need uh, additional thinking on what skills they bring and how to gradually incorporate them at an economy that had the characteristics at the time the team commented, and I tried to comment at the beginning, which is an economy that it's slowing down. So those are the challenges posed by the refugees. I think it's worth stressing that in spite of all that and that this is a situation where you will tend to think Jordanians feel like they are competing for resources with foreigners. We went on a number of missions in Jordan, north to south, east to west. That's not something that will come up in Jordan. Jordan is a country made out of waves of refugees. Uh, they had a large wage of Palestinian refugees. It's a country that has kept its borders open for refugees in the region. And it's part of the narrative of the country, of something they will be proud of, that they are an open country. The pressures in other places would have also been social, coming from clashes between immigrants and non-immigrants. In this case, those were not present. There were mostly economic pressures that I, from a much higher population, to take care of. 
I'd like to go a bit deeper into, you know, what should should Jordan be doing in order to improve its economic performance. So you both recently published a paper uh, with the CID about a growth strategy for Jordan, right? So could you please tell us a little bit more about it? How is it different from the normal economic complexity models that you usually work with? Sure. So Jordan faces a lot of challenges. We had to take the issues that Miguel described, macroeconomic issues, into account in thinking about how the government best positions itself to capitalize on its comparative advantages so that it can generate more exports to pay for imports to keep this economy running and run faster and employ more people. So part of that strategy obviously has to do with responding to the lingering shocks like I was describing in electricity, but it also has to do with recognizing the advantages that the country has, the kind of future economic activities and jobs that can thrive in the country. And that's something that our tools of economic complexity are built to do. The challenge that we faced is our historic use of economic complexity was grounded in the product space, which is built on trade data of goods, because that's easy to measure. There's lots of data. But the world, and Jordan in particular, are evolving to be more service-focused. And Jordan in particular because of the particular shocks that it faced. So we had to figure out a way to do the same kind of exercise of figuring out what industries are the best fit for Jordan, provide the greatest opportunities. So we needed to construct a new sort of network to do that, to understand how industries are connected beyond just manufacturing, but including services. So we were able to do that because the Growth Lab has been working for a while on developing an, what we call an industry space, inclusive of services, and we were able to sort of test it out in Jordan. And what we found were very interesting things. When we used that space, first of all, we're able to see the industries that are present in Jordan already, and there are some of those, and it's important that the government recognize the ones that are exporting, including tourism, some transport services, and figure out if there are particular constraints facing those sectors that can be addressed. But what we also found were there was a whole lot of nearby industries, similar to the industries that already existed in Jordan, meaning that it's not a big leap to imagine that people would be able to switch into jobs in these industries. And they were all based on high-skilled services. So business process outsourcing, regional and global headquarters, education services, healthcare services, creative industries like film, television, construction services. Jordan really has a, a workforce that seems to be well-equipped to fill a lot of jobs, but it has a shortage of companies doing those things. So we took that information from our industry space analysis, and then we used it to try to build strategies for particular opportunities, say headquarters, investigate why there aren't more headquarters moving to Jordan already, if there's some policies that are in the way, if there's some infrastructure that's needed, and help the government target finding and responding to those constraints to put it in the best position to diversify the economy into these services that are relatively less electricity intensive, less water intensive, and better aligned with Jordan's 
high-skilled labor force, and especially it's a large number of women with higher education but without jobs. I'm also a bit curious about how, if there is an interaction between the government of Jordan and high-skilled workers, but who are not people from Jordan, like foreign workers. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Well, one of the things that we found very quickly was part of the problem why companies that would otherwise seem to be a good fit for Jordan weren't showing up is because Jordan has a policy that's very close to high-skill foreigners. There's a mentality that we've seen in a lot of countries that Jordan has high unemployment, so they don't want to attract high-skill workers from abroad. They want high-skill jobs for their own people. So they actually have a policy that constrains access for foreigners. So if a company wants to move to Jordan, that's great, but they can't bring many of their own people. But for a company that has a global brand, a way of doing things, they're going to need some of their own people from abroad to come set up operations. So this was kind of a surprise to some policymakers. It was kind of built into the policy that workers are substitutes, that one foreigner takes away one job for a Jordanian. But the evidence that we found was very clear that there's a whole lot of complementarities. By attracting a company that might need two foreign workers, you might get 100 jobs for high-skilled Jordanians. And then since those are high-skilled jobs that pay relatively high wages, you get a multiplier effect with those people consuming non-tradable services, food, restaurants, travel, retail, that produces a whole bunch more jobs. I think that creates a very interesting contrast is that Jordan is a, is a country that was very open to incorporate people into its labor market, wouldn't put much restrictions for low-skilled labor to incorporate into the labor market, mm-hmm. but would be very careful of not allowing foreigners that are qualified to join the market. For example, high-skilled Syrians were not allowed to work in the area of expertise because there was a perception, as Tim said, that they will take a job away from a skilled Jordanian. So if Jordanian's unemployment rate, as we said, it's very high, and we allow this to happen, it would be even higher. But one of the things that our analysis showed that was really impressive from the outset is that a professional, that it's a non-Arab, was making in Jordan 40% more than an identical Jordanian, same age, same education, mm-hmm. same gender, and sometimes same occupation, and a technician 200%. So that it's telling you that those things are scars in the economy. Now, these are not just high skill. It's high skill with some experience in an area that you don't really substitute with someone that just came out of a very good university like Jordanian universities are. That person has a skill that will allow them to launch a business in a way that will then, as Tim said, allow them to hire more Jordanians. It took a while to get this going because they, they were set on high-skilled foreigners will take jobs from high-skilled Jordanians. And it took us a while to make them see they can be a lot more compliments and the case in which they were substitutes were more of an exception. Is there anything else that you would like to highlight of the project that you were involved in? Well, it's a project that we're very proud of. <laughs> it lasted for 19 months and it was busy. I think Miguel and I can both attest to that, but we're very proud of what came out of it. And like other Growth Lab projects, we started by going in blank slate and applying frameworks that we have, growth diagnostics, economic complexity, and seeing what we learn. And it's always amazing to see where that leads, sometimes very quickly. In this case, it led us to see the the shocks that faced the economy and the fiscal adjustments that were made in a totally new way that nobody had looked at before but suddenly made a lot of the trends make more sense, which was then embraced by international institutions like the IMF and World Bank that have 
big programs in Jordan, and it, it kind of helped them to strategize, and as well as, of course, the government of Jordan themselves, targeting some hidden constraints that outsiders were able to find because we like to say fish don't know they're in water. That's the way things have been in Jordan, but they don't know that that's maybe a little weird in comparison to other countries. So they have made changes in their immigration policy to better balance this need for complementary high-skill foreigners in order to create jobs for Jordanians. They've moved very quickly and ambitiously in capitalizing on their potential for solar energy. They're a world leader in solar, and now they recognize that solar is not just good for the environment, but super important for lowering the cost of electricity and economic growth and jobs in Jordan. And we look back on just this relatively short period of time for an academic project, and we're really proud of the real-world implications it's had for a country that faced a lot of challenges and, and now is at least has some movement in a positive economic direction. Well, that, that's the dream of anyone doing policy research, so that's cool. <laughs> okay, so thank you very much for joining us today. You can find more information about Miguel Angel Santos and Tim O'Brien's and the Growth Lab's work by following Harvard's Growth Lab on Twitter and the webpage growthlab.cip.harvard.edu. To learn more about CIP's research events and upcoming speaker series lectures, visit us at cip.harvard.edu. Thanks for listening and we'll see you back next week.